This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Tactics Where Speech Isn't Violence, Tolerance Isn't Love, and Disagreement Isn't Hate. Thank you so much for being with us on the program this evening. We are, this is the first week of our new schedule where we're doing just Tuesdays and Thursdays. And so uh, still had a lot of adjustments. I know I'm on a little bit late. We're trying to do Tuesdays and Thursdays from seven o'clock until whenever, because, you know, that's the advantage of doing an internet show is that you get to go to whenever. Uh, But that's what we're looking at right now. And I apologize for being a little bit late. We're still trying to hash out all the details kind of going on behind the scenes, but we have a huge show for you tonight. We're trying to put more content in the show since we're doing less of them during the week, and so there was a little issue with the preparation, but uh, we are going to do the weekly coronavirus update as we have done for several months now, trying to give you the latest numbers, the latest statistics on how things are going in the state of Alabama, but there is actually some coronavirus-related news that we have to get to first, it, unfortunately, earlier today, Herman Cain, who many of you may remember, he was a top contender. He was, uh, I believe, finished in the top five the year that Mitt Romney ran against President Barack Obama. Uh, so that would have been, what, the two thousand, the 2012 election? Yeah, so if you remember him from that election cycle, you may recall the guy who was the, uh, the CEO of Godfather Pizza, I mean, the guy just has a, a fantastic American story. The epitome of a self-made man ran for president, came, you know, not too far away from Mitt Romney and being the candidate. And to be perfectly frank, if he had been the candidate, if he had been the nominee from the Republican Party, there's at least a decent chance he would have been president. I think that he would have fared far better than Mitt Romney, for sure. And I didn't agree with Herman Cain on everything, but I mean, a lot of his policies were fantastic. The 999 plan was really good. I don't know if he was actually going to be able to implement it, but I would have certainly been in favor of it. But he actually has died because of COVID-19. There is speculation that maybe he contracted it by going to the big Trump rally that they had in Tulsa. That's not confirmed. A lot of people have speculated about that, but they do not know that for sure as of now, at least not last I checked. And so uh, that that's a rumor that's flying around there, but there's really just nothing to back that up right now. It is possible. It's certainly possible. I mean, it is a mass gathering event indoors when a pandemic is going on, which I said at the time, not smart. But nonetheless, just because that was a mass gathering event does not mean that's where he contracted the virus. Now, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But what uh, to, to understand a little bit of the details here, he had been hospitalized for some time. It wasn't like he just uh, got coronavirus and all of a sudden died very quickly. Uh, he started to deteriorate. He is an older gentleman, and uh, he was hospitalized, and, and he also did have underlying conditions. So he wasn't like the epitome of health or somebody that had no comorbidities, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, this is a guy that did have underlying health issues that were probably the reason that the coronavirus proved to be fatal for him. But what I really hate here is that people are trying to use his death as a political football. That really does just drive me up a wall because even though I like Herman Cain and, and personally like some of his policies... I would be just as bothered by a Democrat if, if the shoe were on the other foot, if it were a Democrat or somebody that's prominent on the liberal side of the political aisle, it's not right for conservatives to use that death as some kind of political football or a way to score quick political points either. That is wrong either way. 
And by the way, sort of to allude to that and, and sort of to give an example of that, it does bother me that there are people that are also using John Lewis's death as a political football. He's somebody that, of course, is a, a longtime Democrat. Now, here's the thing that I do want to say before I go any further. When it comes to the civil rights movement, John Lewis is a hero. I don't agree with some of his economic policies. I don't agree with a lot of the ways that he voted on other things when he was serving as an elected representative for our federal government. So John Lewis is a politician. I'm not really a fan. John Lewis is a civil rights leader. He deserves honor for that. In the same way that I said when John McCain died, I didn't agree with John McCain much on policy. Didn't really like him much as a politician. In fact, he and probably Murkowski and Suzanne Collins those three were always by far my, my most reviled Republican senators. I couldn't stand them politically, but that did not detract the fact that from John McCain being a war hero. I mean, he engaged in one of, I think, one of the bravest acts of any military personnel in American history. The, the way that he uh, kept things going and had the option to go home and refuse to anyway, I mean, that takes an incredibly strong, capable individual and John Lewis showed similar bravery. I wouldn't say it's exactly the same, and frankly, I think you're comparing apples to oranges there. But John Lewis showed a similar kind of resolve when it came to being an important part of the civil rights movement. And he does deserve honor for that. However, it bothers me that a lot of people are trying to use Lewis's death as a political football here. That, that bothers me whether it's him or whether it's somebody that I politically did agree with, like Herman Cain. It's not right regardless of who they're doing it for. And unfortunately, this is being done at the federal level too, but here at the local level, that is something that has been done. In fact, if you will check this out, this is a post from the Montgomery Advertiser. So just to give you a little bit of backstory on this, Wildis Mukes, he is a representative from District 88 right here in Alabama. He's actually my representative. And he serves in the State House of Representatives. Uh, he recently, I'd say, what, three or four weeks ago, we had him on the air. And he was actually a guest here to talk about uh, allegations of him because he was saying something about uh, the, the state of Mississippi shouldn't change their flag, which of course they eventually wound up doing, that the state of Mississippi shouldn't change their flag, that he was a racist, and they started posting pictures of him and his family in front of various rebel flags or flags of the Confederacy. So what happened is he happened to be speaking to a, uh, a group, a birthday celebration for a Confederate gen general, Nathan Bedford Forrest. And he posted a picture about it, and, and the Montgomery Advertiser sort of seized upon this and ran with this headline that you can see. Yeah, so that's the Montgomery Advertiser, and you can see the headline there. Prattville State Rep celebrates KKK leader as Alabama nation mourning the passing of John Lewis. Now, this is actually a pretty good illustration of the difference between the media being uh, accurate and truthful. Is that accurate? Is that an accurate headline? Yes. From a technical standpoint, it is an accurate head headline. Everything in that headline is accurate. But is it truthful? No. I would have to say no. And here's why. I don't think that it was smart for Wildis Mukes to do this. I think that it was a stupid political move, and frankly, 
I don't think that General Bedford Forrest, who is, you know, by many considered to be the founder of the KKK, or at least one of the very early leaders there, and then you also have to consider his actions at the Fort Pillow Massacre, this is not a guy that I see as being worthy of honor, somebody that is worthy of having a, a birthday celebration in his honor. That's my opinion, but I would say that whether it's from just a PR perspective, I would, of course, if I were like, you know, Will Dismuke's political advisor, which of course I'm not, I mean, I'm, uh, I'm just a political correspondent, but if I were, I would have said, well, look, you, you don't need to do that, regardless of whether John Lewis had died that weekend or not, I would say, that's, that's, a, that's a dumb idea. But, but I don't even think that there should be a birthday celebration for Nathan Bedford Forrest. But nonetheless, do I think that Will Dismuke specifically did this because he was trying to coordinate it at the same time as John Lewis's death? No, that's stupid. There were times in Alabama's history where elected representatives did things specifically to basically shoot up a giant middle finger to the civil rights movement. There were times, for example, even though we didn't do this as blatantly as some other states, where we would, for example, fly a rebel flag on the state capitol right around the time that the civil rights movement was going on. There were other states that were notorious for this, Mississippi, South Carolina, so on and so forth. Although I do find it ironic that we're doing this dance again, despite the fact that when that happened, the Alabama... <laughs> Uh, the Alabama House and Senate had been controlled by Democrats for almost 100 years at that point. It had been about 130 years by the time that I was in college. But anyway, so let's also remember that as well. Let's not pretend as though this is a Republican problem or a partisan problem. But that's not what happened here. First of all, regardless of whether you think that Nathan Bedford Forrest should be celebrated like Will Dismukes apparently does, or whether you think that he's not worthy of celebration like me, the man's birthday doesn't change. The idea that somehow Will dismukes because he saw, oh, John Lewis died, let, let me figure out a way to strategically try to stick it to people, or try to... That's stupid. The man's birthday happens at the same time every year. His birthday doesn't shift based on what civil rights leader happened to die that weekend. That's absurd. And so connecting these two as though... Will Dismukes was pondering this and thinking, oh, well, all the uh, people are mourning John Lewis this weekend. I got to figure out something to do that will be super, super racisty. The Montgomery Advertiser is, yes, those two events happen to take place in close proximity to each other, but the idea that they had anything to do with one another is patently absurd, and the Montgomery Advertiser should be ashamed of itself for moving outside the realm of what is supposed to be objective journalism and editorializing and trying to attack a, an elected representative that they simply don't like by connecting two completely separate and unconnected events. It's absolutely absurd, and they should be ashamed of themselves. Can we please just not use people de uh, people's deaths to make political hay? That's all I'm asking. I think that's a reasonable request. Can we all just agree that when someone dies, let's not politicize it? I mean, because there was an awful lot of politicization happening with John Lewis's death, with the uh, eulogy that Obama offered earlier and, and other people that were at the eulogy. Now, maybe that's what John Lewis would have wanted. I don't know. 
Uh, personally, at my funeral, I would hope that there's not a whole lot of talk about politics, even though politics was a very, very big part of my life. Regardless of how big a part it was, that's just not the best venue to do that on. And we saw it with George Floyd. We've seen it with countless other deaths over the years. And it's not, a, it's not just Democrats. Republicans do it, too. I'm not saying that, that they don't. But we should all just agree as a society that's not the right place to do that. It's in poor taste. Let's not use people's deaths as a, a, a political lightning rod, I guess, is the best way to describe it. So let's go ahead and go to the Alabama coronavirus update because, of course, it is that time of week. So if you'll go ahead and look, this is the latest numbers from the Alabama Department of Public Health. And you can see there we have... 83,495 confirmed cases, 677,841 tested, 1,516 deaths, and currently 10,070 hospitalizations. Uh, another good stat to look there is we have 35,401 presumed recoveries. Here's the thing. Considering that we have about a little over twice that in confirmed cases, uh, and that's actually pretty good considering how late a lot of those cases have come because we've had such a big uptick in those cases over the past few weeks. So the fact that we have a considerable amount of those cases already presumed in recovery, probably a good sign. As I've said from the very beginning, presumed recoveries isn't a great gauge because I'm guessing what they do is they just uh, subtract the deaths from the number of total cases they have that are more than two weeks old. So is it a super reliable statistic? Probably not, but it's good to have. And speaking of fatalities, the numbers this week would bring the fatality rate down to 1.8. You may recall a couple weeks ago when we did the last coronavirus update, it was 1.9 because we took last week off. So it is going down. It's not going down super fast, but it is going down. We, we saw dramatic decreases in it earlier. At one point, it was over 5 point something. And now that it's down to 1.8 and it is still dropping, that is a, that's a very, very good thing. Now, the real figure, according to the CDC's statistics and their estimates, because they believe based on their sampling that they did across the country that there are actually about 10 times more people with coronavirus than actually we know about, and, and that's based on their numbers. If that is true, the real fatality rate in Alabama is probably 018 which is really good because that means that even the seasonal flu only has a 0.1%. So that's still significantly more than the flu. It's close to double it, not quite. Uh, so I'm not trying to say that we need to take it easier. There's nothing to worry about here. But uh, let's be honest, a, a disease that has a 1.8 fatality rate that is barely, uh, you know, it's, it's, I wouldn't say just barely, but it, it's deadlier than the flu, but not even by a factor of two. That's something that's a really, really good sign for our state. So let's go ahead and look at, uh, I wanted to show you this. We're going to do something a little bit different this week. Um, we're going to go ahead and, and pop this up here real quick. So let's go ahead and look at the new coronavirus cases, and we're going to go through the averages for the week. I think that's probably the best indicator that we have right now. So let's go ahead and look at that. Okay, you can see there that the uh, coronavirus cases, um, if you're looking at the seven-day average, if I can bring it up, there we go. Uh, the seven-day average, and this is July 23rd through July 30th, so the previous week, the one that we're in now, is 
1,543, that's how many we're averaging per day. But if you look at the previous seven-day average, that is 1,791. So that's really good. That means we had a much better week this week than we did last week. That is a decrease of 248. So that's certainly something that is a positive, something that we can look at and, and go like, all right, so we, we actually are getting better because considering how high our case rate has been, I think that's the first seven-day average decrease that we've seen in about a month. And so the fact that our daily uh, increase and in, our, our daily average increase has actually gone down is a very good sign. And it's not even going down by a, a insignificant amount. I mean, almost 250 less cases per day. That's a very, very good sign. And what could be happening here, what that probably means, and we've seen similar things happening in states that have dealt with this thing a little bit earlier, that, that their curve is a little bit ahead of ours, is that they do see these gigantic spikes that coincide with them, um, that, that coincide with, uh, generally speaking, about Memorial Day is when most of the country's spikes started happening, and then they started dying down. Some states got that spike a little bit earlier than Memorial Day, where they started a little bit earlier than Alabama's did, and then they started to drop down. What may happen is that we've sort of peaked and we're starting to uh, head to our uh, head on on a downward trajectory from here on out. I hope that's the case. The numbers really aren't conclusive enough one week to the next to be able to tell that. But if so, that's going to be a very good thing for us. So let's go ahead and look at the 14-day averages. Now, what I want you to note about the 14-day averages, um, the 14-day averages, the reason that I'm doing this stat uh, and the reason that it's important to look at this is because remember that 14 days ago, 14 days ago was the first day of the mask mandate, which means here we are two weeks out. Now that, because this virus has a two-week incubation period, we should be seeing results from the mask mandate if it is indeed effective. And so we're just going to follow the numbers where they lead. So the 14-day average for the previous two-week period, so that's July 16th all the way to today, is... 1,667. Now, if you look at the previous 14-day average, that is 1,468. So, in other words, we have had an increase of 199, so just barely under 200 new cases per day since the mask mandate went into effect. That punches a pretty substantial hole in the narrative that the mask mandate is going to stop the spread. Because remember, they've moved the goalpost on us several times now. Originally, it was to uh, stop being overwhelmed, to flatten the curve, and then the flatten the curve narrative went away completely because we already flattened the curve. And then it was, we have to have 30 days to stop the spread, and that was, you know, like two months ago. And so the recent thing now is we, we've all got to mask up. We all have to have the mandatory mask. And uh, as I've said from the very beginning, Governor Ivey's mask mandate was actually illegal. She does not have the power to, to do that. Even if you agree with the mask mandate, even if you think it's a good idea, the important thing to remember is she did so illegally without the authority of her office. This is not something that the governor of Alabama has the power to do. But nonetheless, whether you agree with it or not, let's go ahead and since it's in place anyway, at least measure its effectiveness. And the mask mandate, which we already had deaths you know, not spiking. We, we already had deaths that were not wildly out of control. 
our hospitals were not wildly, you know, over overpacked or anything. We weren't, you know, reaching near capacity levels. We weren't running out of ventilators, any of that stuff. So the only measure that was deemed problematic were the fact that we were having so many new cases. And so we put the mask on, we wait two weeks, the virus's incubation period to see how we're doing with the mask on. We have an increase of almost 200 people per day looking at those two-week averages, more than when we didn't have a mask mandate. So this is a failure on, I would say, cataclysmic proportions. Like if the only thing that your policy is supposed to do is to bring down our new case numbers and we've got 200 more people per day getting this thing than we did when we didn't have the mask mandate, that's pretty bad as far as the policy goes. I mean, that's like President Obama saying that we're going to decrease health costs by about $2,000 per family of four per year and then it goes up by about $2,500 in that same time period, that's a pretty epic failure. And while granted, I would say on scale, it's not the same as KIV's mask mandate. It hasn't hurt any people uh, like that particular policy did. It's pretty similar on the level of failure when you look at what it was intended to do versus what it actually did. Now, am I saying that, you know, it's the same as Obamacare in the sense that Obamacare actually made the prices go up? No, I'm not saying that at all. I don't think that wearing masks or in this case, we're, we're actually more looking at the effectiveness of mask mandates more so than actually wearing masks. I don't think evoking a mask mandate is what caused the cases to rise. I'm just saying that the cases were already on the rise and the mask didn't seem to do a darn thing to deter it. So that being said, I, I think that that pretty, puts a pretty substantial hole in that theory. Let's go ahead and look at how we're doing on testing. Now on testing, if you want to go ahead and check this out, we on our seven day averages are doing about 850 or sorry, 8,547 our previous seven-day average, 8,690. So what happened there? Because that is a decrease of 1,143. Why are we testing less? Well, here's the thing. I don't think that this is a failure on the part of the state of Alabama. I don't think that we have some kind of problems because here's the thing. We're, we're not seeing people that are saying, oh, well, I wanted to go get a coronavirus test and it wasn't available or I had to wait a certain amount of time or anything like that, which granted the wait time can be a pain, but it's not like it's unavailable or it's not like it's something that would over a seven day period be something that is going to severely inhibit our ability to gauge it. And these are just tests that have been done, not necessarily the results that have come back from them. So what's probably happening here when you see a decrease in testing you know, it's it's difficult to say. One thing may be that there have been more people that got the virus, and because of that, they no longer have a need to get tested again. We also have an increase in presumed recoveries from that initial big spike, and so those are people that no longer need a test or, or no longer would see fit to go get a test because they're basically immune, at least for a little while now, because they've had the coronavirus. So there's a number of different factors. I don't know exactly what it is for sure, but any of those could be contributing factors to the reason we're seeing less testing. Since we're not seeing a shortage of testing material, it's far more likely that just people, for whatever reason, are not going to get tested rather than the, the state is letting people down 
in offering tests for them. So that seems to me to be the more likely explanation here. So let's go ahead and look at coronavirus deaths in the state of Alabama. So if you look at the deaths, this is the seven-day average, again, from the current seven-day period, July 23rd to July 30th. And you'll see there that our seven-day average is 22.7. So on average, sadly, 22.7 Alabamians are losing their lives per day due to this pandemic. The seven-day average from the previous uh, week, 22.4. So that is an increase. This week, we are having an increase in deaths, but it's virtually the same. That's only an increase by 0.3 people per day. So an increase, but not a substantial one. We're basically at the same place we were last week, at least when it comes to deaths. As you can see, that's an increase of only 0.3. However, let's look at the two-week thing, because remember, the, the mask mandate was put in place two weeks ago, and so this is a two-week comparison. Our 14-day average for this 14-day period, July 16th through July the 30th, is 22.6. The 7-day average f deaths for the previous 14 days when there was no mask mandate, 19.4. That's right, there is an increase of 3.2 deaths per day since the mask mandate has been put into effect. And remember that it usually takes, you, you, the death rate is a lagging statistic. And so you typically see, you typically see about a two-week delay between the spiking cases and the increase in deaths. And so that's something that we're looking at, but it's been two weeks now. It's been two weeks since the mask mandate was put into effect. So since we've seen an increase since the mask mandate has been put into effect, of both cases and deaths, and it is an abysmal failure by every single uh, rubric you could look at, at least so far, based on the data that we presently have, does this prove that masks don't work? No. I know there were a lot of people that were probably expecting me to go, see, the masks don't work. No, that's not true. In fact, we have a lot of data based on uh, surveys that have been taken in other states, some that have been taken nationwide, so it could include some Alabamans. I'm not one that I'm not aware of a study that specifically looks at Alabama, but based on the behavior that we can see from our neighbors around us and also national surveys that probably included at least some people from Alabama, here's the thing. It looks as though just like the shutdowns, there were people that were masking up before the mask mandate went into effect. And by the way, this seems to, based on the data, coincide with an increased threat level. So the average person with no prodding from the government whatsoever will just pay attention to the news, notice that there is an increased risk when it comes to coronavirus, and put a mask on without the government telling them to, which is the way that it's supposed to work. There's no reason to mandate these things. People were shutting down before the shutdowns started, and people started opening up before the shutdowns ended. And based on the data that we're seeing so far from many, many different states, people were masking up and wearing the mask, like me, before the government required them to do so. This is America. The government follows us. We don't follow the government. It's the opposite of the way that it is in other parts of the world. The government doesn't have to mandate something for us to do it. People can watch the news, see that there is an increased threat, 
and take precautions of their own accord. And if they don't want to, that should be their business. But that's where we stand right now. It doesn't prove that masks don't work. But what it does prove is that mask mandates do not work. Because we're seeing the exact opposite of the intended effect when it comes to the mask mandate. There's no evidence that either here in Alabama or anywhere else in the world that masks do play a significant role. Now, does that mean that they don't? know? Just because there is a lack of data, a lack of evidence, does not necessarily mean that that is the case. In fact, I think that common sense would lead a person to believe, and personally, this is what I believe, that masks probably do protect you at least some. Like They probably offer some protection. And more importantly, if you do have the virus, they probably do offer protection for other people around you. I don't dispute that. I think that that's probably accurate. But the thing is, we have had viruses in the line of SARS for, what, 15, 20 years now? And they've never been able to conclusively prove that people wearing masks makes a big difference. Now, maybe it, must, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. And I think that it's a, a reasonable thing to ask people to do, but don't mandate it. That's the only issue that I take here. And before the mask mandates were put in place... I myself was wearing one of my own free will, of my own volition. And now I really don't want to just because they're telling me I have to. I mean, I'm just going to be honest about that. One of the primary reasons that I don't want to wear one now is because they tell me I have to, and that just drives me up a wall, especially when they did so illegally outside the bounds of Alabama law. But ultimately, you need to, re you need to understand here that the science is inconclusive. And when there is a dearth of information, when there is a dearth of hard data, you don't take away people's liberties and their freedom to choose based on a hunch. And another interesting point that I saw actually this week from, he's basically the Swedish version of Dr. Fauci. And by that, I mean that he's basically the top doctor and the advisor for his government in Sweden. They were asking him about mandatory masks, and, and Sweden doesn't, you know, have the same governmental structure as we do. They, they probably could legally mandate that their citizens do wear masks, which is something that would be much harder to do in the United States, at least at the federal level. They don't have such a stipulation, but when they were asking him about it and why his country has not mandated masks, one of the things that he pointed out that, frankly, I just hadn't thought of before is he actually went out and said... Well, one of the things that we're worried about is if we do mandate masks, we're afraid that that will actually cause the rates to increase. And the reason that he said that, and I thought that this was very interesting, and, and I've seen it play out myself, and, and you probably have too, I'm guessing, is that people, when they wear masks, they feel like they're invincible and they can do whatever they want. That they can just go and, and do whatever and they don't have to worry about social distancing. They, they don't have to worry about, you know, all the other practices like washing their hands, that kind of thing. That if they wear the mask, they will be less cautious. And thus, the other practices, which have shown to be far more effective in preventing the spread of the virus, they will ignore because they feel like they've got the mask, which we really just don't know whether or not it actually plays any significant role in spreading the virus. Things like washing your hands, social distancing, we know for a fact that they do that that people are more likely to go out and do things because they feel like, oh, if I've got my mask on, then I'm protected and I don't have to worry about it. See, now that's the funny thing in all this. 
because over the past couple of weeks, because of some of the comments that I've made, I've been accused over and over again of being anti-mask and denying science, which again, the science is very much up in the air whether masks actually work or not. But uh, I've been accused of things like denying science and being anti-mask. I'm not the one that's doubting the power of mask here. What I'm saying is the science is unclear and it seems to me like you're the one that isn't sure whether or not masks work or not, or, or at least doubt that they do anything, because if the masks work, why do I have to social distance? If the masks work, why do we have places that are shut down right now? I mean, if, if the mask is the panacea that people are acting like it is, then why can't we go to a, a baseball game or a rock concert or, or whatever else or, or go to church or whatever, as long as we're wearing masks, if that just protects you and, you, and you, nothing bad can happen to you when you're wearing a mask, then why do I have to, why, why can't I just wear a mask and then do whatever I want to afterward? See, by suggesting that we do need to engage in other practices, which I think is smart, things like social distancing, like continuing to, to wash our hands on a regular basis, carrying around hand sanitizer, all those other things, and, and you know, uh, being less likely to do things that we would normally do and, and don't act like we're invincible just because we have a mask, you're asserting that you don't think the mask is necessarily foolproof either, which is the correct stance to take. See, it's funny to me that all the people that are accusing me of, uh, you know, some kind of anti-science stance because I don't necessarily buy into masks being foolproof, they're the ones that are actually acting like the masks don't work based on saying that we need to keep schools shut down and all this other stuff. And so it is actually kind of funny when you look at that. Look, in the absence of data, the burden of proof should always be on the person that is making the policy proposal. So if you're somebody that is proposing that we need to stay shut down or do all these other things, the burden of proof is on you to prove that it works, not the other way around. That's where the burden of proof lies. It's not, first of all, you can't prove a negative anyway, so it's not incumbent upon me to prove to you that masks don't work. It is up to you to prove that they are necessary and that the mask mandate works. And when you look at the data, the data simply does not support that. I just showed you the numbers right here from the state of Alabama. Pre, uh, before the mask, after the mask mandate, the mask mandate isn't working. Maybe the mask work, I don't know, but in the absence of that data, you don't have the right to require something from me. And I don't know any other way to put it. So speaking of this, and, and we're going to go into great detail on this one, I don't know if you saw, but earlier this week, the governor is now requiring masks in schools, even for young kids. So Meemaw says you got to wear your mask, guys. Uh, governor KIV has extended the, what is it? What, what are we on now? The safer at home orders, I think is the new moniker for these guidelines, and she actually extended it from July 31st, in other words, tomorrow, because that's when it was supposed to expire, all the way to August 31st, which, frankly, was kind of expected. Yes, I'm peeved about it, but I've already talked about how ridiculous the mandate is. The thing that is bothersome to me now is because she extended it and, and extended it into presumably what would normally be the school year, she also added a stipulation that all school children must wear the mask when they are in attendance to school. Now, I'll start off by saying this real quick. Unlike the mask mandate that's just universal to every citizen in the state of Alabama, this is not something that is outside of the governor's purview. 
I mean, when you consider the fact that public schools are indeed government buildings that are essentially owned and run by the state, yes, they're owned by their local school boards, which are affiliates of the state, not going to get into all the rigmarole there, but essentially these are government buildings, and just like schools can require, for example, children to have certain vaccines, yes, they can require students to wear a mask. I'm not saying they can't. I'm saying that the policy itself is dumb. And that's really the conversation we should be having here. On the regular mask mandate, we need to talk about the constitutionality of it. And I'm talking about Alabama's constitution, not the federal one. On this one, well, that's a moot point because we know that the government can do it. The question is, should they? Because when it comes to school children, these are the people that are by far the safest. And I'm talking about children here, of course. So let's go ahead and look at some stats again right here out of the state of Alabama to illustrate the, the point and in, in how safe children are in schools when it comes to this virus. So you can see there that, and this is uh, Alabama COVID stats for people between the ages of 0 and 25. That's just how the stats are counted. So I couldn't get one for just people under 18. So you can see there that of the there are 18,060 cases for people in this age demographic in the state of Alabama, which means that they make up roughly 22.14% of all COVID-19 cases here in the state of Alabama. They make up six of the deaths. Not 60, not 600, six. 0.4% of all deaths in the state of Alabama. They got 22% of the cases, only 0.4% of all the cases in the state of Alabama are people between the ages of 0 and 25. And this is the fatality rate. 0.033. By the way, real quick, hat tip, just a shout out to a buddy of mine that uh, brought this up. Uh, she actually noticed that I put a decimal place in the wrong place and corrected me. A buddy of mine that actually teaches math a math teacher by trade, so I just wanted to say thank you to Taylor for doing that for me. I really appreciate it. And uh, anytime, if, if any of my stats or anything is wrong on the show, feel free to comment in the section or, or message me and let me know because I, wanna, I want all this stuff to be as accurate as humanly possible. But anyway, thank you for doing that. This is the fatality rate. 0.033 for people between the ages of 0 and 25 in the state of Alabama. That is infinitesimally small. This means that the, the actual rate of being a... I mean, it's just absolutely insane. That means that if you get this virus and you're under the age of 25, you only have a 0.033% chance of actually getting it. And by the way, this is not adjusted for filtering out people that have some kind of pre-existing condition or comorbidity. This is everybody. This is counting everybody. And keep in mind that it is also counting people that are between the ages of 0 and 4 and people between the ages of 18 and 25, which don't even attend public schools in most cases. And yet, the fatality rate still 0.033. It is incredibly unlikely that even if you do get this virus, that you are going to die from it if you are in that age demographic. And if you adjust it for the CDC estimations, because remember, we talked about this a little bit earlier in the show, that the CDC has estimated that 
Oh, actually, that that statistic is wrong because uh, um, there should be one less zero there. So I apologize for that. But if if ten times more people have this than originally thought, then that means that the adjusted CDC estimate is zero point zero zero three three. So ten times less likely than originally uh, postulated there. So to put that into perspective, the CDC's flu fatality rate for the state of Alabama for people under the age of 18 is 0.042. That means that the flu, at least in the state of Alabama for children, is 21% more fatal than the novel coronavirus. I want to let that sink in. It is 21 times more likely that if a child gets the flu that they will die than they are if they get the coronavirus. Now, if you were to look at a different age demographic, because a whole lot of people compare this to the flu, and there's some legitimate comparison there, but it is a different ball of wax altogether. If you are to compare the two, that... If you were to look at older demographics, if you were to look especially at people, you know, over the age of 50, well, that number's basically flipped on its head. The coronavirus is actually far deadlier for people in that age group than people, or, than the flu is. But the reverse is true for children. The regular seasonal flu is deadlier to them than the coronavirus. That's because this particular virus, the number one risk factor is age. And children, they're not completely immune to it. Yes, they can technically die from it, but it's insanely rare. Even kids with pre-existing conditions and comorbidities, even they have a very, very infinitesimally small chance of actually dying from this thing because of their age. And yet these are the people that we believe we have to throw mask on them and make them wear it eight hours a day. That doesn't make any sense. I mean, just looking at the sheer numbers, it doesn't make any sense. And let's go ahead and, and look at this as well. You can see here that these are some more stats to, to ponder on all this. So the fatality rate, you may recall, we were just talking about this, is 0 0.33. The CDC car accident fatality rate is 0 0.88, which would mean that children are 2.6 times more likely to die in a car accident than they are to die if they get the coronavirus. And that's not just children, you know, th their possibility of getting the virus and dying. That's the rate of children after they already have the virus. So even if your kid, even if you're ignoring the fact that the kids are less likely to catch it, even if they get it, even if they already have the virus, they're already sick from it, they're less likely to die from the virus at that point than they are to die in a car accident. So if you're driving to kid, your kid to school, they're more likely to die on the ride there than they are to die after catching the virus at school. The risk factor is basically non-existent here. And that's why, first of all, closing the schools is absolutely insane. But even what Governor Ivey is talking about here, making children mask up. And by the way, there are several school districts that have decided to go ahead and cancel school or do school virtually or whatever. 
these a schoolhouse is basically the safest place that you can be just about it when it comes to this virus closing them down or forcing people forcing kids to wear a mask just does not make any sense the flu death rate in alabama is i mean it's deadly the flu is deadlier to them than the virus a riding in a car is two times six more likely to result in their death than getting the viruses. We're talking about an incredibly small risk factor here, and we're contemplating shutting down schools and throwing masks on them for what? Going to school regularly is riskier than doing it here. It just it, it doesn't make any sense at all. Now, the rebuttal to this naturally is going to be, well, it's not about the kids. Because, yeah, the kids are at low risk for... Uh, they're, they're at very low risk of dying from the virus, but what if they get it and they bring it back home to a, a family member, a grandparent, or whatever? First of all, I don't think that it's absolutely unreasonable uh, for if you are somebody that is at high risk for this virus to maybe stay away from kids at that point. But the truth is, I don't even think that that's necessarily something that you have to do, and we'll talk about why here. First of all, there has been absolutely no evidence whatsoever that children have a high rate of catching the disease or transmitting it. They seem to catch the disease at a much lower level than their older counterparts. And remember, like I was saying earlier, when you are the one proposing a policy, your the burden of proof is on you to prove it is a good idea. The burden of proof is not on me to prove that it is a bad idea, but I'm going to do that anyway because I have to have something to talk about here on the show. Uh, there's been no evidence of that, and that alone should be enough to end the discussion. However, let's just beat this dead horse as long as we can and see what we dig up on this one. So, first of all, there's several reasons why kids are probably less likely to transmit the disease than anybody else, and the reason that it is so incredibly low. In an, eb an, in an absence of data, in an absence of proof, you could just go ahead and say, well, the burden of proof is on that person to prove it. They can't do it. Let's just walk home. Yeah, you could do that. And that is a legitimate, logical way to reach that conclusion. However, in this particular case, we can ask ourselves why there is a lack of evidence. Because a lack of evidence could, of course, be used as saying, well, then we shouldn't do it. I mean, I could make, for example, some kind of claim that invisible hobgoblins are the actual cause of the novel coronavirus, and what we should do is we should start trying to eliminate the hobgoblins, and that'll fix the problem. Well, you can't prove that that's not true, but you also can't prove that that's very likely either, and the burden of proof would and ought to be on me to prove my theory to say that, yes, my solution might work, not the other way around. It's not incumbent upon you to prove that hobgoblins are not causing the virus. That's how burden of proof is supposed to work. And so, with that in mind, I could just call it quits here and walk away, but I'm not going to do that because I think that actually there's a significant, the lack of evidence actually indicates that this is something that is highly unlikely. Because as much time as we have had across the world and here in the United States, I get that data is limited on this virus because it's, it's newer, but by this point, we've been dealing with this since February, you would think that we would have some data as to whether or not children are at high risk, and we don't. Now, does that mean they can't transmit the virus? Probably not. But that does indicate that they are probably so incredibly unlikely to spread the virus that that's the reason we haven't found evidence of it. I believe that there probably are at least some cases of child transmissions. 
but they are so rare and so hard to track down that we don't have evidence of them simply because they are so incredibly rare. We have plenty of transmissions that we know about from adult to adult, but very, very, well, absolutely none for kids, not in the U.S. or any other country in the world. There's a, there's a couple of reasons why this is probably the case. First of all, they have very low rates of being symptomatic. So even if kids do catch the virus, there's a really good chance they're not even going to know that they're sick. There's a really good chance they're not even going to experience symptoms or it will be so mild that they think that they're just sick with something else. This has been very common among people that do have the virus. Also, when they do get sick, because their bodies are more resilient to it, they don't stay sick for as long, which means you have a shorter window of time where you could possibly transmit the virus. And so that's another way that we can look at this and go, oh, okay, well, you know, there's just a smaller window of time for me to get the virus, and that's probably why they're not transmitting at rates that are, that are even significant enough to be observable uh, by our scientists and, and by the studies that we're doing. And then another reason that is quite possible, we don't know if this is true or not, this is just a theory that's being floated around the medical community, but it seems to have some legitimacy, is that nasal ACE2 enzymes in their nostrils. So the, it, it's an enzyme that works as a receptor for the coronavirus. Kids just have less of it. And so that's probably a factor that you have something that is a receptor that is more common in adults and not so common in kids, which means that there's much less risk for them contracting the virus, even if they are actually exposed to it. It would still have to come in contact with that receptor, and kids just don't have as much of it as adults do. So even in the, if they are risking exposure, they're still at lower risk for actually getting it, and if they don't get it, they obviously it's harder for them to spread it as well. And so th those are three reasons Again, not conclusive, but that people believe that children are probably significantly less likely to transmit the virus than other people. But if that's not enough for you, let's go ahead and look at some other countries and how they've dealt with it. Because keep in mind that a lot of countries have already reopened schools. And these are the results that they've yielded. You can see these headlines here. Uh, right there, you will see a headline from the uh, Institut Pasteur, which is... Uh, they, it's a French organization that did this study saying that in uh, primary schools, the significant transmission uh, on children from students or teachers, there was no significant transmission. So that is uh, of note. And then you also have Reuters, which says that reopening schools in Denmark did not worsen the outbreak, according to the data. By the way, it is important to note here that other Scandinavian countries, which include um, Sweden and Finland, reported basically the same thing as Denmark. I also do find it pretty hilarious that the left, which is always crowing about how we need to be more like Scandinavia and Denmark, uh, that when it comes to reopening schools, they don't necessarily believe we should be following in their example, even though their data shows that there was no significant increase in the outbreak even after they did open schools, which... I would have expected there to be some increase and just say, yeah, but the, the risk uh, merits any or the, the reward outweighs the risk. But here they're saying, no, there's really not any risk. It didn't increase the outbreak. And then you see this one from the Telegraph. This is actually the largest study that was done on the effects of coronavirus in school children. Their study found that there was no evidence 
that coronavirus spreads in schools. No evidence. So again, why are we shutting down the schools if that's the case? What is the purpose of shutting down the schools if every single piece of evidence we have seen so far from around the world shows that this thing just doesn't spread all that well in kids? There's no evidence anywhere in the largest study that's ever been conducted in the world. And we're thinking that now we got to mask up every kid in school. Why? Just doesn't make any sense. This is probably my favorite one. And uh, you can see this. This is from a, an epidemiologist. He wrote an editorial for um, the Times. And you can see his work here. Um, th this is based on his work in the UK. And you can see here what uh, the headline is, the school closures, a mistake as no teachers infected in the classroom. And now what I want you to do is look at this little highlighted portion here in the very bottom of the screen. Scientists yet to find a single confirmed case of teachers catching coronavirus from students anywhere in the world. You know how many school children there are in the world? It's a lot. I don't know the exact number, but it's a lot. And this epidemiologist that studies this for a living, he's looking at it as like, there's not a single case anywhere. Not one. We can't find one. Anywhere in the world. But sure, because we have to protect the teachers and protect the parents and all this. There's no cases of teachers catching it from kids. Not once. And they're presumably the... the the person that the kids come in contact with the most, they certainly come in contact with more students and more people of that age than anybody else, and yet they're not catching it. So what are the odds that one child coming home to grandma and grandpa is going to spread it to them? I'm not saying it's impossible, but it ain't good. If it's virtually impossible for kids to catch it, they're not increasing the outbreaks, and there's also no cases of a teacher catching it from a kid isn't it pretty darn reasonable to believe that if it's never happened anywhere in the entire world that we know of, that we're overreacting here? I just don't understand why everybody can't look at this and go, well, that's ridiculous. And just, I honestly do not get it. And here's another thing, too. I'm, I'm going to go off of the data because this has been a very data-driven segment. And now I'm just going to appeal to common sense. Do we really think this is going to work on little kids? Have you ever watched a little kid? Granted, I'm not a father, so I don't spend a lot of time watching how little kids interact, but, you know, I've, I've done babysitting and that kind of thing, and I've watched little kids before. They're not exactly the most conscientious people. I mean, they tend to, like, pick their nose and touch their eyeball, and if they're wearing masks, do we really think that that's going to help them all that much? I actually saw a really funny meme earlier, which is like 100% something that a kid, especially like a, a kindergartner or a first or second grader would do, that uh, your kid's going to leave home with a Spider-Man mask and come home with a Paw Patrol mask, and uh, then the whole school is going to be shut down the next day. Because that's the thing that's so ridiculous about them. Like, they don't get it. They're not, they don't understand germ theory, the vast majority of them. And so, to them, that's just not a big deal. 
The idea that masks are going, like, we can't even prove that masks are effective amongst adults. Do you really think they're going to be effective amongst a seven-year-old that's just not all that conscientious, that can't even keep his hair straight? <laughs> like, this is not an effective strategy for younger kids, at least when it comes to, like, middle school and high school. At least when it comes to that age group, I could kind of see the mask being a little more effective in that setting. But do we really think a seven- or an eight-year-old is going to be conscientious enough to make sure that he's not touching the inside of his mask? I mean, you're an insane person if you think that. I, I just, maybe there's a handful of super conscientious seven or eight-year-olds that are, but the vast majority of them, no, it's not going to matter. And the thing is, based on the data, that shouldn't make a difference because they're at such low risk of catching it or dying from it or passing it on to somebody else anyway. And another thing that they need to consider, what if a kid has asthma? Or what if a kid really can't breathe with the mask on? Like, this is a thing that happens to little kids. The vast majority of them, it probably wouldn't bother them. But what about that one kid that has a hard time breathing? Uh, I actually know a guy that's asthmatic that can't wear his mask for very long because he actually will start to hyperventilate and, and he has a medical reason. And this is an adult. Asthma is significantly more common amongst children. And so what happens to that kid? Ultimately, what this boils down to is I'm not anti-mask. I'm not saying that masks don't work. I'm not saying that there's no merit to it. I'm not saying that if you don't want to wear a mask, you shouldn't. I'm saying it should be a choice. It should be a choice in society whether you want to wear a mask or not. Now, I might argue that you need to wear a mask, but I'm not going to say that the government ought to force you to do so. I don't want to force what I believe will work upon you. That's how it works in a free society. And when it comes to school kids... When we're looking at this and seeing that there's virtually no chance that this has anything to do with whether or not the kids stay healthy or the people around the kids stay healthy, why would we mandate it to them? If you're a parent and you're concerned about it and you want your kid to wear a mask, tell your kid to wear a mask. By all means, do whatever you want. But don't force it down their throats. There's no reason for that, especially considering that there's no evidence that it would do anything to help. Look, I'm trying to follow the science here. I really am. I do tons of research. The reason that we started late tonight is because I was doing all this research and crunching all these numbers. But at a certain point, you do have to say, even if you are trying to follow the science, and, and that's what I'm doing, that human free will and human interaction and the ability of human beings to make their own decisions needs to be a factor in making these decisions. And so far, we're treating it like it's not. We're going to take a quick break here, and we'll be back in just a minute. This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. That was stupid. I know it was stupid. Really stupid. Hey, I just said it was stupid. And for today's Daily Dose of Stupid, we actually have a triple dose, and we're going to be rapid-firing through these stories very quickly, but uh, each one of them are pretty darn funny, so we're going to... Try to go with that. Since we are trying to do the new format, the bigger show, do the uh, more prominent shows on Thursdays, we figured we'd give you a triple dose of the Daily Dose of Stupid. So here's the first one. Apparently English is racist now. I mean, let's be honest, it was only a matter of time. The word English is right there in the name. It's from England, so it's got to be racist at some point. So th this is actually from uh, Rebecca Walkowitz, I believe is the way to pronounce her name. And she is from uh, Rutgers University. So we can see uh, this is the statement from her department. 
And uh, you'll notice this, uh, this approach challenges the familiar dogma that writing instruction should limit emphasis on grammar, uh, grammar sentence level issues uh, as to not put students that are multilingual, non-standard academic English backgrounds at a disadvantage, Walkowitz said. Instead, it encourages students to develop a critical awareness of the variety of choices available to them with regard to level issues in order to empower them and to equip them to push against the basis uh, biases based on written accents. Now, this is the funniest part of this entire spiel here. Languages have to have some kind of standard to facilitate communication. They have to have some kinds of rules or regulations or else what you're reading won't make sense to everybody. If one person means something one way and they write it down, but it doesn't follow some kind of standardized principle, and then the next person who reads it has a completely different principle that they just made up and, and your standard is fine and your standard is fine. We're living in some kind of crazy postmodernist version of the English language. Well, if that happens, then people are going to get an incorrect message from what you're reading there. Writing is a form of communication. So if it no longer serves that purpose, then you are not teaching writing. If you're saying anything goes and you can just write whatever you want and you can throw a comma there and we're not going to count off for it, then you're not teaching that person English. I, it just doesn't make any sense. And what's so funny is that the reason that they are jettisoning this is because they say that it's somehow uh, racist or it puts people that have a multicultural background at a disadvantage. Have you spoken to any English speakers in America? We suck at the English language. If anything, we're at the disadvantage. I've talked to, because I'm a missionary, uh, I've talked to tons and tons of people that were not born in America or not born in an English-speaking country that speak significantly superior English to the people that I talk to every single day. I mean, I, I work at a college. Some of these college students, their grasp of the English language is pretty, you know, loose. We'll say. And they were born here. And then I talked to some of my international students that are here. They speak significantly better English than the students that have been speaking English their entire life. So I don't buy into that baloney about people that are multicultural or have a different background or have a different first language being at a disadvantage there. They can learn English too. And here's the other thing about that. When I do go to other countries or I do have to speak to somebody that's different or I try to speak in a different language or try to learn another language. I'm actually going to school right now. We'll, we'll be starting this fall and I'll have to learn Kone Greek and at least some Hebrew because I'm majoring in the Bible. Well, I don't expect the rules of that language that I'm learning to bend to accommodate me. That doesn't make any sense. The whole purpose of learning another language is to learn its rules so that you can better facilitate communication between people that are native speakers or people that, that understand how that language works. That's what that is. If you're not teaching those rules, then you are not teaching anything. If I'm not learning 
how the Ukrainians say certain things or how the, the rules of Ukraine's grammar function, then I'm not learning Ukrainian. And I will also be inhibited in my ability to communicate with another person. Just like a lot of this other postmodernist theory, this is an excuse to not learn. When they jettison objective thought and objective truth, then what they are essentially saying is, no, anything that anybody thinks is right, and, and what right do we have to tell them that it's incorrect? Well, that's the point of teaching. If you just say, however you want to do it is fine, then that person is no longer challenged to learn something. And you're not doing your job as a teacher if that is the case. But even more to the point, isn't it pretty darn racist to assume that somebody from a different background, someone that wasn't born in an English-speaking language, is incapable of learning that language and, and incapable of using the correct form of grammar or somebody that was, for example, black? or multiracial is, is this particular one, because this whole thing started as a, some kind of nod to Black Lives Matter. That was earlier in the article that I shared with you. Isn't it pretty racist to assume that a black person is incapable of speaking proper English or writing in proper English, or that a person from a different country is incapable of doing so? We're lowering the standards for them because they aren't capable of learning correct English? That's pretty darn racist if you ask me. <laughs> Just assuming that they're, they have some kind of learning disability that, that puts them at a disadvantage, because that's what he said. He said that uh, holding them to a standard of proper English puts them at a disadvantage. Well, what you were saying then is that the white people are superior to them because they are not disadvantaged by holding them to those standards. Uh, well, then you're suggesting that they are inferior based upon their race or their country of origin. Man, what a, what a racist, xenophobic Nazi this guy is for coming up with this. This is what's so hilarious to me right now, is that in recent weeks, some of the rhetoric coming out of people, uh, we saw that crazy thing with the Smithsonian where they were saying that being on time or the nuclear family is a construction of white people. And I'm like, no, that, that's just a normal human thing. I mean, there are plenty of things that white people invented, like mayonnaise, that one's on us. But when it comes to the other stuff, like a lot of things are just human things. And communication is a part of that. The idea that a black person or a minority person would be at a disadvantage where a white person wouldn't be by holding them to a higher standard implies a soft bigotry of low expectation. You are expecting that person to be not as adequate as a white person at the skill that you were talking about. That makes you a racist. It's darn near impossible to tell the difference between the woke left and David Duke these days. When I was reading through that Smithsonian thing where it was talking about how uh, being on time and uh, expecting to work before you do something recreational, that those are all white things, I'm like, man, did the Klan write this? Because that sounds exactly like what they would say. It's getting difficult to really understand the differences between those. Let's move on to our second story, which actually might kind of prove that this first story has a point. There is an Auburn professor, yes, Auburn University, my alma mater. I, I love my university nine times out of ten when I see their name in the news. I'm excited about it. This is one where I kind of have to hang my head in shame here. Uh, an Auburn professor says, F every single cop. So this is the original tweet by Dr. Jesse Goldberg. And uh, if we can go ahead and pull that up here. 
There we go. All right, so Jesse Goldberg tweeted this, and we couldn't get the actual screen grab of the tweet itself because his Twitter is private after another event that we'll talk about here in a second. But this is essentially it here, where he says, word I can't say, expletive, every single cop, every single one. Okay, so he's real clear about that. The only ethical choice for any cop to make at this point is refuse to do their job and quit. The police do not protect people. They, pol they protect capital. They are instruments of violence on behalf of capital. A couple things here. First of all, I guess the whole hashtag not every cop thing is gone now. Because... That was the narrative from the left for a long time, right? Okay, well, yeah, we're, we're talking really badly about cops and we're saying that they're all systematically racist, but not every cop. Which, I mean, that, that stance was hanging by a thread anyway. And this guy's like, nope, every single one, all of them, they're all bad. Not a single good one. F all of them. And this is the guy that is charged with teaching English to your children at Auburn University. So, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe English is racist, maybe... <laughs> The people at Rutgers were onto something there. Uh, but no, Jesse Goldberg, just for context here, remember, this is the same professor that a few months ago was featured in another episode or another portion of Daily Dose of Stupid when he refused to say War Eagle because it had the word war in it. So apparently, saying the word war, that's a bridge too far. It's too offensive. It's too controversial. I can't bring myself to say it. Saying F every cop, every single one, they're all bad. No big deal there. What kind of screwy fantasy world is this dude living in? But anyway, let me ask the deeper question here. Why is racism bad? Seriously, think about this. Why is racism a bad thing? It's because you assume certain things about a person before knowing who they actually are. You look at their skin color and you say, oh, I know things about that person, positive or negative. Uh, I, I know certain things about that person because of their skin color. I'm going to assume that that person is lazy or ignorant or whatever else or genetically inferior because of their skin color. So what's that called? That's called prejudice, right? That, that would be the textbook definition of prejudice. In fact, we have the textbook definition of prejudice right here provided by Merriam-Webster's dictionary. You can see here, prejudice. Injury, uh, we'll skip past the first one because that's essentially the legal definition. So the definition there that I have highlighted, preconceived judgment or opinion or an irrational attitude of hostility directed against an individual group or race of their supposed characteristics. Now, of course, police officer is not a race, but how does all of that not fit exactly with his little spiel that he did on Twitter against police officers? Because remember, prejudice can be against a group. That's what the dictionary just said. Now, maybe the dictionary is racist now. I don't know. But, <laughs> but nonetheless, so he's engaging in not racist-based prejudice, but prejudice nonetheless, that's wrong. And so I guess that, you know, by, by any standard, you could say it. And, and the second part of that, which is really funny, is what does he mean by protecting capital? Well, I assume what he means there is 
protecting stuff, protecting uh, pro things from property damage, protecting storefronts, that kind of thing. That's primarily what police do. There's very few occasions, it happens, but it's rare, where a police officer saves somebody's life or protects a person directly. Usually, I wouldn't say all of their job, and I don't even know what percentage of their job, but a significant portion of their job is protecting property, and that is true. Why is that a bad thing? Why is a police officer protecting a person's property not something that should be applauded? I mean, if they're stealing your stuff, you're super grateful for that, that that police officer showed up and stopped that event from happening, aren't you? I would think so. It's such a insane... I mean, this, this guy's already clearly got his own problems. This dude's mind is a bag of cats. I don't know who hired this dude, but... Uh, I mean, th this is just absolutely insane. First of the War Eagle thing, now this. Why is it a bad thing that police officers are charged with protecting our property? Life, liberty, and property, those are the primary rights, aren't they? And furthermore, when it comes to protecting capital, that often is tied into your livelihood. I mean, if, if you've only got enough money for food for a couple weeks and someone steals all your money, then you go hungry for those next two weeks. And if it happens often enough, it can hurt you and injure you to a way that you cannot survive. Capital is important, and it should be important. I'm not saying that it's as important as a human life, but it can contribute to the betterment of a person's lifestyle. And this is why this whole insane leftist idea of defund the police is asinine. Who's hurt the most by that? Is it the guy that's living in a gated community that probably has enough money to afford a security system and armed guards and all that? Does that guy suffer because the police officers aren't around anymore? I mean, he might theoretically, but probably not. If you live in a super nice neighborhood, even if you don't have armed security, is there a high likelihood that your stuff's going to get taken because the police aren't around? Probably not. Maybe a little bit higher than the guy living in a mansion with armed security, but definitely not a really high level if all of your neighbors are, are basically your income level and, and they don't really have any reason to steal. So who does it hurt? It hurts people in poor communities. It hurts people in you know government housing and the projects and, and just neighborhoods that are lower income. And that's true across the race spectrum, black, white, whatever. There's an awful lot of, uh, you, you know, there's mixed race there just like everywhere else. It does primarily hurt minorities, or at least some minorities, not Asians, but it does hurt some minorities because they are more apt to be impoverished. But this goes a lot further to hurt, like, you know, a single mom that's raising a couple of kids uh, who maybe her husband passed away or something like that, and uh, she can't really defend herself or her children if the police aren't there to help her. Now, I would suggest that that person would be armed. I'm assuming that Dr. Jesse Goldberg would not suggest that for a young woman. But isn't the police benefiting her more than the other people? See, this is the irony in a lot of leftist thinking, leftist policies. The policies that they propose actually hurt the people that they are purporting to protect. The odds of getting shot as a black person just because you're black, I mean, like you're not committing a crime or anything like that, 
or it's an unjustified shooting is infinitesimally small. You're more likely to be struck by lightning than you are to be killed wrongfully at the hands of a police officer. But if you're a poor black person in a poor black neighborhood, the odds of you getting robbed if the police are no longer there to deter people from robbing you significantly higher. I mean, even with the police, it's significantly higher than the first scenario where you would get shot unjustifiably by a police officer. But those are the people that this hurts the most. And they're ignoring that. Idiot leftists like this guy probably never even consider that, but those are the people that are most harmed by the calls to defund the police. But keep in mind, this is the guy that thought War Eagle was too offensive to say, so we shouldn't expect much. And then finally, the NCAA has allowed social justice messages to be posted on Jersey. So the way that this works is now they can have some kind of patch or, or put some kind of message on the Jersey and wear that when they're actually in gameplay. This is sort of going along with what the NBA recently did with their players that you, you're allowed to put certain messages, certain political messages on your Jersey. Now they haven't done what the NBA did which has released a list of things that are appropriate or things that you can put on your jersey. They haven't done that, at least not yet. So we can be grateful for that. However, one thing that they have, uh, one thing that I would like to point out is just because the NCAA has said that you're allowed to do that doesn't mean the schools have to. It doesn't mean the schools have to allow their students to do that. Uh, if We'll just use Auburn since we've been talking about Auburn already. If they do that and Coach Malzahn says, no, we're not going to do that. That's his prerogative. Just because the NCAA allows it doesn't mean that he has to allow his own players to do that. But I'm guessing, especially because as we've just seen a glowing example of, even more conservative colleges tend to be a bastion of liberal thinking, that most schools probably will. This is something that unfortunately we're probably going to see pretty prominently this upcoming sports season, if sports ever do actually resume at some point. But uh, it's unfortunate, but that's probably going to happen. I will say how it's interesting that they specifically allowed for social justice messages. I think that that means, and I could be wrong, we'll have to wait and see. But I think that that means that you're going to see something very similar to the NBA, where instead of just saying you can, you can put a message on your jersey, they say you can choose from this list of approved messages that you're allowed to put on your jersey. And unfortunately, I have a feeling that it's all going to be left-leaning because they specifically said it's going to be social justice messages. Now, I think what they're going to do is they're going to say that this is about expression and free speech. Things that I'm very much a fan of. I mean, the reason that I'm allowed to have this show is because we have an amendment that protects free speech. And so I'm definitely not opposed to that. But let's see how free speech they actually are. If there's one guy that wants to put Black Lives Matter on his jersey, then there should be another guy that should have All Lives Matter on his jersey. Or maybe Unborn Lives Matter on his jersey. I don't see why that would be a problem. If you're going to be for free speech, you got to be for free speech. And so I, I'm going to see and, and be watching carefully engage how free speech the NCAA actually is. Is this something that they're only going to allow left-leaning messages, which is what the NBA did? Or are they going to allow any message? I tell you what, though, um, and a, a friend of mine pointed this out when I made this point. 
uh, they would be far more likely to put a message on an NBA jersey that would allow a pro-life message. They're going to allow that way before they would allow free Hong Kong. <laughs> He's not wrong about that. That's their, bre- that, that. that's their bread and butter, and so they're not going to offend them. What if they put taxation as theft? If they put taxation as theft on the jersey, I'd like to see that. What about back the blue? Are they going to allow that one? You know, just support for our police officers. What about Second Amendment? They going to allow that one on a jersey? Because I got to say, even though I think that this is dumb, I think that this is not a good move. I don't think this in any way enhances, enhances the sport or the viewing portion of that. At least then they would be consistent. At least then the, uh, the NCAA would be, at the very least, not showing favoritism. So we'll see how that pans out. But ultimately, what I want to ask, and and this has probably been kind of a theme of the show building up the entire time, must we inject politics into absolutely everything? Because when I'm watching an Auburn football game, or an Auburn baseball game, or any other sport, or Auburn basketball, or or, I don't really watch softball all that often, or if I do, I only watch it on the TV. I definitely am not going to another softball game live. Uh, But anytime I'm watching any of my Auburn sports or any other college game, I don't want to think about politics. And I'm a person who the vast majority of my life revolves around politics. I mean, I I am constantly watching the news. I do it for a living. It's part of my job. And even I want to get away from it when I'm watching sports. College sports, Major League Baseball, whatever I'm watching, I don't want to have to think about politics. Half the time when I turn sports on, it's specifically because I'm tired of the news and want to watch something else. I don't want to watch it and be bombarded with political message right or left. I think that it's dumb either way. Because if I'm trying to get away from politics, frankly, even if I saw something great like all lives matter or unborn lives matter or, you know, abortion is murder or anything that I agree with, I don't necessarily even want that on my sports screen because I want to get away from that for a little while. And I actually agree with fellow Auburn alumnus Charles Barkley, who said if they're going to inject politics, and keep in mind, Charles does not agree with me politically on most things. He, he supported, for, uh, for Pete's sake, Senator Doug Jones. Uh, but Charles Barkley even said, like, man, making this whole thing political and, and injecting politics in every little part of it is going to get people to not watch sports. And he's right. The whole point of that is escapism. And I think they're shooting themselves in the foot by making absolutely every facet of our lives, injecting every little piece of society with politics. It's not healthy for us as a society. We have no common spaces left where we can come together as people that don't agree with one another politically, but can still have a good time because, you know, we're all Auburn fans or we're all Braves fans. We used to have that in America, and that was one of the reasons I think we were less divided. Now, even that has to be political And now you're going to see even that become politicized to where people on opposite sides of the political spectrum don't even socialize or uh, have any kind of association with people because there is no common space left. Let's go to the chaplain's report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps under the command of General George Washington Each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. 
It's time for the Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics. Chaplain's Report today does continue in our book, uh, in our study of 1 Samuel. And for those of you who may not have seen the most recent episode, we've been talking a lot about this episode that happens in Samuel 15. So what happens is God gives Saul a correct a correct, a direct command, I almost mixed my words together there, to destroy the Amalekites, their livestock, their royalty, everything. They're supposed to be completely destroyed, no spoil taken. They're not supposed to take their jewelry or anything else, destroy the entire people, wipe them off the map, and then come home. So Saul doesn't do that, unfortunately, because that's become par for the course for Saul, unfortunately, over the past several chapters, is that Saul has a tendency to not do what God asked him to do. And here we see Saul do the same thing again. He destroys most of the people, but he keeps the livestock, and he also keeps King Agag alive, even though he was not supposed to. And so this is what happens, and in, in this is where we pick it up, in 1 Samuel 15, verses 24 through 26, where he says, Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me, that I might worship the Lord. But, the, but Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. This is a pretty difficult moment for Saul. But at least Saul finally admits to doing wrong. Because if you've watched the past several episodes, if you've seen, if you've read through the past several verses, you know that Saul has denied any wrongdoing. First, he basically tried to hide the fact that he sinned, which didn't work out. And then after he had been found out, he said, okay, well, yeah, technically I may not have 100% followed God's command to the letter of it, but it was because I was trying to do the right thing and I wanted to make sacrifices to God, and uh, really the people made me do it. Now Saul is finally saying, you know what? I screwed up. I sinned. I didn't do the right thing. I listened to the word of the people instead of the word of God. I'm sorry. So it took him a while, but he did finally get to that place where he has admitted that he has sinned. But my question here is, is he truly sorry? Is he sorry that he did the wrong thing, or is he sorry that he got caught? Because to be honest, it seems to me a lot more like the latter. And remember that Saul wasn't always like this. There were a lot of times in the earlier part of Saul's reign that he's the person that that brings Israel together, that, that starts the long process of casting out the Philistines. I mean, there's a lot of good in Saul's resume, but that doesn't matter because God is concerned with what we're doing now and what we're going to do in the future. Now, that works out really well for us in a lot of ways, because that also means that God is capable of forgiving our past sins, which far outweigh any good deeds that we've done. But that's what God is primarily concerned with. And Saul has messed this up. Now, he's finally at least admitted to it. But it seems as though this isn't the most sincere apology. 
And part of the reason that I bring that up is because we didn't read this particular verse, but a little bit later in the same passage, Saul basically begs Samuel to come back with him, he says, so that the, the other people won't despise me. Even after all this, even after he specifically tried to blame what he did by saving the livestock on the people and saying, even in this verse, I have sinned because I heeded the words of the people instead of God. I have sinned because I have transgressed the commandment of the, the word because I feared what people thought. He still hasn't learned his lesson. Because just a couple verses later, he says, you know what, Samuel, you need to come back with me because I'm really concerned what other people are going to think. It's like he can't help himself. He can't get out of this mindset of wanting to please people rather than God. And that's why I say I'm not sure that this is a altogether real confession, a real admission of guilt and doing the wrong thing, because it kind of seems like if Saul were given the option of doing it all over again, he'd have done the same thing, which is the opposite of biblical repentance. Repentance means to turn around and to do differently than you would before. All we're seeing here is that Saul still cares way too much what other people think about him and doesn't care nearly enough what God thinks about him. And to that end, why wouldn't God forgive Saul here? I think that's the reason. Because God can see into the heart. I mean, looking at it from a human perspective, you almost feel sorry for Saul in this moment, going, well, Saul did say he was sorry. Saul did ask for forgiveness. But we have to remember that we're not God. We do have the advantage of hindsight, though. And we can see how Saul acts after this. Not only with what I just described with him still being way too concerned about what other people thought about him, but also the way that he interacts with David, the way that he interacts with Jonathan. God gets to see all that before it happens. He knows that Saul's heart has not changed. He can see that already. And we have to remember that he can see it with us. Sometimes even when we ask for forgiveness of sins, and this is something that is highly, highly personal to me, even if we mean it in the moment, even if we are crying out to God and begging Him to forgive us and to help give us the strength to do better next time and to not fall into this kind of sin or temptation again, and then we find ourselves, you know, maybe just an hour later involved in exactly the same thing, how real was that confession? How real was that plea for forgiveness? And see, God knows that ahead of time, too. He knows who we are, and He sees into our heart. And so, I, I get so frustrated with people that say, well, as long as you're sincere about your faith, then you're okay with God. No. Maybe Saul in the moment was super sincere here. It didn't change the fact that he was not willing to make the difficult decisions and the tough changes later on that would have merited a true repentance here. This is not a true repentance because he doesn't change his ways. And the same holds true for us. If we don't change our sinful ways, then we can't call what we're doing actually repenting. We're saying some words and asking for forgiveness, but we're not actually putting in the work to have repented. And another thing that's important to remember here is that forgiveness does not mean freedom from the consequences of your actions. Maybe God did forgive him here, I don't know. But it's also possible that God forgave him for his sin right here, but also said, okay, well, I do forgive you of your sin, 
But that doesn't mean that you're not going to fall prey to the consequences of your own actions. Your sins do have worldly consequences. So even if God completely forgave Saul of his sin right here, that doesn't mean that he still wasn't going to take the throne away from him. By the way, we see this with his successor as well. You remember that David, even though God said to David that you have been forgiven in the incident with Bathsheba, for years David still had to pay for the consequences of his own sin. There were ramifications and ripple effects that took place because of what David did. And even though God himself had forgiven him and told him that he was forgiven, that didn't mean that he still didn't suffer negative consequences because of the actions that he had taken. And Saul is about to experience the same thing. Maybe, again, in this instance, he is sincere, and, and maybe God has even forgiven him. That doesn't mean that you are all of a sudden immune to all of the worldly consequences of the bad decisions that you have made. And that doesn't mean that you can't come back and be spiritually stronger and even be right with God and, and go on to lead a godly life and eventually be with him in heaven if you're in a similar situation to this. But that doesn't mean that you all of a sudden are off the hook and none of the bad decisions that you've made are going to come back to bite you. Let's say, for example, you're, I don't know, a drug addict or an alcoholic of some kind, and you ruin your relationship with your kids. But then... Years later, you come to find Jesus, you clean up your act, you're no longer engaged in that sin or letting that sin become your idol, and, and uh, that's no longer a problem for you. That doesn't mean your relationship with your kids, you don't get that back. You don't get to take those things back, and there are still real-world consequences. Even if God forgives you, it doesn't mean that there aren't going to be consequences for our actions. So then the question becomes, why is it that Saul was at this point unfit to lead? He was not able to be a king after this point. And Samuel tells him in no uncertain terms that that is going to be the result of his disobedience. You see, this isn't just a failure on a personal level. This is a failure as a king. As horrible as what David did with Bathsheba, in a lot of ways that was a personal sin. In a lot of ways, what David did there, yes, it did affect Israel, and, and that can't be overlooked. But in a lot of ways, that was a personal sin against Uriah. It wasn't as though David actively defied God's orders with Israel. Now, he actually does do that later with the census uh, in a less direct way. But here, Saul was given a direct command by God. And he is charged with leading God's people to be closer to him. And what does Saul do instead? Not what God told him to. And what was the way that he reached that point? Because the people called out to him and he feared the people by his own admission. So at this point, Saul is no, fit, no longer fit to be the leader of Israel. Just like us. I mean, if we are in a leadership position, whether it's in our church or in our families or whatever else it is, then we can find ourselves in a similar situation where we make a, a, a decision that doesn't just affect us, but leads people that we are charged with in the wrong way. And that's serious. And it also means that we can actually have our leadership removed from us, just like Saul did here. 
That's why we have to stay vigilant to make sure that no matter what we do, obedience is always the first priority. That no matter what other people want, no matter what other people say, no matter what the world tells us to do, that ultimately we have one master and we obey him to the letter of the law, period. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. Only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.